Good morning. The first scripture, excuse me, is for three verses 18 through 22, found on page 1890 in your pew Bible. For Christ so suffered one the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient, Noah was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And the second reading is found in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, on page 1552 in your pew Bible. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The word of God for the people of God. I'm relieved that hammer wasn't for me. None of you get any ideas. Friends, would you pray with me this morning? Holy and loving God, we pray that your spirit would move in us, work in us, changing us and transforming us, molding us, making us into the disciples you would have us be. Lord, help us to put ourselves aside, our own desires, our egos, our wants, to focus on you and what you would have for us. And as we enter this season of Lent, of prayer, of fasting, of giving of ourselves for others, Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage, by your mercy and grace, to follow where you lead us. Speak to us this morning, O oh God. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story of, uh, of uh, de- the devil in the conference room of hell. This is not a joke. You all think I'm setting up for a joke. This is of the devil gathered all of his chief demons in this conference room in hell because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is really kind of starting to catch on and people are responding. And so it's a re- because a lot of people are believing about Jesus. So I want you to take a day and come up with the best lie that you can. And then we're going to report back and we're going to figure out um, the best lie to prevent people from hearing about and responding to Jesus. 
So they do. They, they, the chief demons go back, and then they convene a day later with the lies that they have developed. And so the devil starts to go around the table, the conference room. And he says to uh, the chief demon there, he says, all right, what's the lie that you came up with? And he says, I think the best lie is to tell them that there is no right. There's no right. So that they can go and they can live however they want. All right, that's a pretty good lie, says the devil. And he, he goes to the next uh, chief demon and he says, well, I think uh, the best lie that we could tell people is that there is no wrong. Tell them that there's no wrong. We're do away with standards. That's a, that's a good one too, says the devil. And he goes around and he gets all these ideas from these different chief demons. Finally, he gets to the last one. And it's, um, the, de- the demon is kind of sitting there and he looks at the devil and he says, here's what I think the best lie that we can tell people is. We can tell them that there is just no hurry. That all the time in the world. And the devil sits there and he puts his hands on his chest and he leans back in his chair and he says, now that is the best lie of all. To convince people that there's no hurry. C.S. Lewis in his masterpiece of Screwtape Letters, which is a communication between a chief demon and like a little underling demon in training, communicates something similar and I think they put in that they put their finger on a truth that that is indeed a very very effective lie from the enemy that there's no hurry we have all the time in the world and friends I've heard this as a pastor in many ways and and seriously start to grow in my faith once this season of life is over. Acting as if there's no hurry. There's all the time in the world. If there's something that Mark's gospel teaches us, is that we do not have all the time in the world, and indeed there are things to which we must attend, and we must do it quickly. As I've shared, we're in the, the season of the church year where we hear a lot from the gospel of Mark, and Mark does not give us a lot of details. Mark shows us rather than tells us. And in six verses, look at how much ground is covered. In six verses, that's all that Anne read. Six verses. Jesus goes down to the Jordan. He's baptized by John. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he's... And then he comes and he begins his public ministry. And what's his very first sermon? Repent. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. In six verses... There is nothing at all in Mark's gospel that would indicate a sense of leisureliness, of taking his time telling his story. No, there's an urgency that this message from Jesus, there is an urgency with it and a need for those who hear it to respond immediately. There's something interesting in the gospel reading in verse 9. Now, in the NIV, it says at that time. Other translations render it in those days. And it made me think about something that I hear from folks all the time. I'll be talking to folks and we'll have a conversation. And you know what often comes up? Folks will say, well, in the good old days. In my day. 
in my, you know, this, uh, this sort of backward view of when maybe times were simpler or things were better or gas was, you know, 97 cents a gallon or, you know, eggs were, you know, 25 cents a dozen or something. You know, there's something that recalls to mind a certain time, right? When you hear those words, in, in my day or in the good old days or in that time, there's something about those days, right, that, that draws folks to them. So I thought to myself, you know, when Mark uses that and he says at that time, or as another translation says, in those days, what did he mean? What were those days like? You know, when Mark was writing, something was happened to the people. They had had almost 500 years of silence from God. There were no prophets like Elijah or Nathan or Isaiah or Hosea or Malachi. There were no prophets speaking on behalf of God to the people telling them of God's plan and God's will for their lives, of, of God's uh, covenant faithfulness to them. Almost 500 years of silence. And so do you know what had happened to the people? They'd become comfortable. They were spiritually malnourished. Sure, there were some who were waiting for a Messiah. But if you read other texts and other histories about the people in the history, there was a spiritual malaise. 500 years is a long time for God to be on radio silent. And so the people, many of them had thought, what? Well, God's abandoned us. This is just how things are. Or maybe those promises of a Messiah, maybe we, maybe we read them wrong. Maybe God lied. There was a spiritual complacency among the people. So often, when we come to Scripture, what does it function as? A mirror to ourselves. People thinking they have all the time in the world. Spiritual complacency. Spiritual malnourishment. Is there a mirror to our day at all in any of that? There surely is. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and Mark, the first gospel writer, records this, this hurriedness with which Jesus shares the message. He goes, he gets baptized, he's tempted. Now, Mark doesn't include any of the the temptation story, does he? All he says is that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And then there's this, Well, I love what Mark says. There's sort of this battle. There's wild beasts. And then there's angels who attend to Jesus. And after the temptation, he goes out and he starts to preach. As as you recall, I said Mark shows us rather than tells us. So in these six verses, what does he show us? Well, Jesus, when he goes down and he's baptized, and a voice uh, we know this from other gospel accounts. The voice comes down, declares who he is. He comes up out of the water, and he's driven into the wilderness where he faces temptation. What's temptation? How would you define temptation? Not a super easy word to define, is it? It would be kind of one of those things that we know it when we see it. Maybe hard to define. <laughs> 
Have you heard that anecdote? You know, what's your temptation? Chocolate. Don't think about chocolate. What's the only thing you can think about? Chocolate. Maybe it's chocolate for some people, sure. Ice cream. Janice. Okay. Did you hear what Janice said? She said, an urge to do something that's wrong for us. Now, here's the thing about temptation. Often, the object or the thing that tempts us is a good thing turned bad. Right? Now, listen, is there anything wrong with chocolate? No. Might not be a good idea to sit down and eat 20 bars in a sitting. That could have detrimental effects on you. But it's taking a good thing, but twisting its purpose. That's all temptation is. All the created order around us. Physical pleasure, fame, status, money. All those things in and of themselves aren't bad. It's how they're twisted and used in a purpose that is against God's original intention and design. That's temptation. And so Jesus is driven out into the wilderness and he faces three temptations. If you go to other accounts particularly in Luke and Matthew, of Jesus' temptation. Jesus is baptized. And as I said, when he's baptized, the voice from heaven, the Father speaks down to the Son, the Holy Spirit descends. And when Jesus is driven into the wilderness, according to Matthew and Luke, which give us the fuller stories of the temptation, the very first thing that Satan says to him is to call into question the last thing that Jesus heard. So, Jesus hears a voice and said, this is my son, the beloved. And what is the first thing that Satan says? If you are the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. He calls into question what God, has, the father has said over the son. And friends, in that pattern, in what Mark lays out for us, We see spiritual realities, spiritual physics, as it were. You remember last week with the story of the transfiguration? Just in a moment, the disciples have this spiritual epiphany. They have this experience, and it lasts for just a snap of the fingers. And then they go back down the mountain, and they encounter people who are sick and hurting. The same with us. So often, something happens to us, we have a spiritual moment, and what's the next thing that often happens? Satan comes in and causes us to question. Friends, if you and I are not secure in who God has called us, if we don't know our identity, first and foremost, is not how other people see us, it's not even how we see ourselves, it's how God sees us. And if we're not secure in that, the moment that we step foot in the wilderness and we face difficulty and obstacles, we're going to give in to temptation. We must know who we are in God. First and foremost, beyond any other label, any other identity marker, it's who we are in God through Christ. That is what will sustain us in the wilderness. Nothing else. And Jesus, after he comes out of the wilderness, 
He goes and he immediately starts to preach. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The shortest sermon. Sermon I know you'd love to hear me preach. A short sermon. But it's all, everything is contained just in a few words. Repent. Change your way of thinking and being. Go from this direction and start moving in this direction. It's a complete reorientation of everything in one's life. Repent. Why do we repent? Because Jesus has come near. And when Jesus has come near, the whole values of this world are pitted immediately against the values of the kingdom. And Jesus is able to then, having gone through the wilderness, he goes out and he starts to preach. And he can do that because that faith, that declaration over his life, that word has sustained the difficulty, the trial. And now he can go out and preach. Friends, you and I, followers of Jesus here in in this time and this place, maybe you're finding yourself in a wilderness. How many of you have been there? How many of you may be there right now? You feel like things are coming at you from all sides. Well, I have good news for you today. We find over and over again in Scripture that that wilderness place, oh yes, maybe you even feel abandoned in the wilderness. But so often we find that it's in that place that God is shaping us and molding us and forming us because something is coming for us to do. And we're not going to be able to step into it and do what God has called us to do unless we've gone through the wilderness, unless we've gone through that period of purification and trial. Our own temptation. Those days, in that time, is not so different from ours. All around us we see it, don't we? We see spiritual malaise. We see people who have maybe forgotten about or given up on God. Maybe we even see people around us who feel they have all the time in the world. Well, friends, the gospel teaches us that today is the day. We do not have all the time in the world. Time is short. None of us know from day to day what a next day will bring. Now is the time to get serious about our discipleship, to lay aside those things that so often, friends, even in church, come up, that we think about and that we squabble about and that we think are so important. And at the end of the day, guess what? It's not. It's not. We have a message, the only thing that can save people. So are we living, are we acting as if we have an urgent message to share? Friends, it's my prayer for you and for me that as we go through these 40 days, and as I share on Ash Wednesday, Lent is like a spiritual boot camp. It's a time of getting back to basics of our faith, of getting serious about prayer, of stripping away those things in our lives that hinder us from a relationship with God. 
about giving our lives away for others. That's what Lent is all about, to get us to think seriously about those things and to not only think about them, but to then live them out. It's my prayer for us that we enter into that, that we go through it, that we get serious, and that we allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to shape us in such a way that we begin on fire with an urgent message to share with those around us, to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Amen. Amen. Amen.